Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. The Lord is with you. I've learned a couple of things in teaching and preaching about um, communication. For example, like if you notice that the congregation is starting to drift away, you can just say, let me tell you a story. And all of a sudden you've got their attention back. I've noticed that. And I've also noticed that in the classroom, if the class seems to be fading away, doodling and uh, nodding off or turning to Facebook or some other thing, uh, if you say, what I'm about to tell you will be on the test, that suddenly you have their attention. It's, uh, they start to stop their doodling and pay attention for a little bit. Well, let me tell you a story. So, it's in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. It's a very dramatic moment in just a few verses. It's Tuesday of Jesus' last week on earth before he'll be crucified on Friday. And that day was a day full of controversy and conflict. His opponents lined up one after another to try to trick him with some question or another. The Herodians had been there with political questions, and the Sadducees had been there with theological, biblical questions. And then the Pharisees step up. He had responded to each of these trick questions like a professional tennis player returning the serve of a junior high school student. He, he was dealt with one after another so adeptly. And then this lawyer, this seminary professor, this uh, Pharisee stepped forward to ask Jesus a question. It says in verse uh, 20, 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? This is a significant moment. The Jewish people believed that the law, the Torah, was the greatest revelation of God ever given in any form at all. The law, the books of Moses, was the greatest revelation of God they had access to. And now this professional, this student of the law who had pondered them and talked about them and discussed them for years and years and years, a professional theologian, he scoured and memorized and debated the meaning of this law over the course of an entire career. And he comes with this question. Out of the greatest revelation of God, what is the most important commandment? Well, he and his fellow Pharisees knew how many commandments there were. They had counted them, every single one of them throughout Scripture. 613, to be exact, commandments in Scripture. They said 365 of them were negative ones. Thou shalt not, one for every day in the year, I guess. And they said that 248 of them were positive ones. Thou shalt, one for every bone in the body, they said. Uh, they knew the law inside and out. And now here is this 
expert in the law, the greatest revelation of God ever given, asking the question about, of all 613 commandments, which one is the most important? That's the kind of question he and his fellow lawyers would have debated over the years. The greatest commandment in the law. And he asked this of Jesus. It says to test him. That verb to test Jesus is only used of the Pharisees and of Satan in the New Testament. He's coming to trick him. He's trying to test his understanding. And uh, so he asked Jesus, if you were to prioritize all of these laws that God has revealed, which one would you put at the top? Are all of them of equal weight? What's the most important? And then to add to the drama of this moment, he's asking this question of Jesus, the greatest teacher who's ever lived. The full revelation of God himself to us. Arguably the most intelligent, smartest human who's ever lived. So an expert in the law, the greatest revelation of God, is asking the greatest teacher who's ever lived what the greatest commandment is. So get this, whatever comes next is going to be on the test, right? Whatever he says is going to be worth noting and writing down. It's a dramatic moment, extremely important. And Jesus, when he's asked this question, he doesn't blink. He doesn't sit down and scribble in the dirt. He doesn't shuffle his feet or scratch his head. He just looks that lawyer in the eyes and tells him exactly what he knows from the depths of his heart. The greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. That's the greatest commandment ever given. Love God with all your heart. And before anybody can contest that or argue with it or affirm it, he adds something very quickly. And the second most important is like it. Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, he summarizes, he says... Hang all the law and the prophets. All the commandments are wrapped up in these two. What a dramatic moment. Man, the disciples were pulling out notepads and scribbling this down. This was going to be on the test for sure. The greatest commandment ever given. Jesus' response to that question is one of the finest examples of simplicity you'll ever see. He, he takes the 613 commandments and pours them into a beaker and turns up the heat of revelation until it's distilled into just two. Love God, love people. He walks up to the board where the lawyer has written the most complicated of equations and he begins to simplify terms until only two remain. Love God, love people. He takes the complexity of all the written commandments and all the arguments that had been made about those commandments and all the laws that had been developed orally on top of those commandments to explain the 613. And he boils it all down to these two, four words, really, love God, love people. If those two commandments from the greatest revelation of God up to that time in the law were identified by the greatest teacher who ever lived, then you and I would do well to pay more attention to what they mean for our lives. This is a familiar story, familiar question with a familiar answer. We've read this and heard this so many times. And the problem with over-familiarity is that it can just zip over. Oh, we know the punchline already. It's love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandments. Next. Listen. 
These are the greatest commandments. They're the most important things that we could know and practice. We need to find ways of paying maybe closer attention to them than we ever have before. Why the greatest commandments, why do you think? Why didn't he choose two others? There are a lot to work with. These two commandments, I think, are, among, are listed as the greatest for one reason, is that they express the very essence of what it is that God is doing in the world, of God's purpose in the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that the sort of the summary of the whole biblical message is that from Genesis chapter 2, at least, when he creates humans in his image, all the way to the book of Revelation, the story seems to be that God is gathering for himself a people made in his image who love him wholeheartedly and who love each other unselfishly, a people composed of folk from every tribe and language and nation and, and, and people group in the world. That's what God longs for, is to see the gathering of people made in his image, redeemed by Christ, who love him wholeheartedly and who love each other unselfishly. And these two laws summarize God's purpose in just that way. This is the church. This is the gathered people. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This is what God wants. This is what eternity looks like. Loving God wholeheartedly, loving each other unselfishly. Jesus says that all of the law hangs on these two commandments. It makes sense based on these two commandments. They spoke of there being two tables of the law. Moses was given the two tablets. And the first four commandments that are given to us, no other gods before me, no idols, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those four commandments focus on loving God wholeheartedly. And the ones that follow... Uh, honor your father and mother, do not commit adultery all the way to thou shalt not covet. Those deal with our relationship with neighbor, how we treat each other. And so Jesus said, all of the law really hangs on these two things. Love God, love people. Or you can think about the cross, which is a model for our living as followers of Jesus. It has two dimensions to it, doesn't it? There is a vertical dimension that the death of Christ reconciled us to our God and that the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the life of following Jesus and taking up the cross has a horizontal dimension to it as well. That is, we've been reconciled to one another because of Christ's death on the cross and we are called to love people unselfishly as we love ourselves. And Jesus often taught that if you break the horizontal one, you also break the vertical one at the same time. If you're standing before God, worshiping him at the altar, he says, and you realize your brother has something against you, go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and make your offering. Because whenever a relationship is broken, whether we break the vertical one or the horizontal one, it's broken at the, the intersection. We, at the time we become out of sorts with God, we are almost immediately out of sorts with one another and vice versa. That's why these are the two most important commandments. They summarize all of God's purposes for us. This is what he longs for us to know and to do. They express his purposes in the world. And I think maybe these are greatest commandments too because they're based on a relationship rather than on a set of legalistic 
demands. These are the two commandments of the 613 that you can never check off your list and say, okay, I've done that one. You can say, I kept the Sabbath this week. You can say, I honor my father and my mother. But this loving people and loving God is an ongoing kind of thing because it calls us to a relationship, doesn't it? Not to a list of things to do. We're not called, you and I, to obey the law. We're called to obey a person. We're called to a relationship with God, to love a person. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus was addressing some of the Pharisees who had focused very much on keeping laws, and they thought that an important thing to do because God had given the law after all. And Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees! You tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Jesus said, you're so meticulous about keeping the law that you even go to your garden and you take, harvest your herbs and you take a tenth of them to tithe to God. You're so meticulous. But you've neglected justice, the horizontal dimension, your relationship with other human beings, and the love of God, the vertical dimension. It's fine to have kept the rest of the law, but you should have done this first so that you perform justice and you love God, and those other things flow out of it. We don't get by by a set of legalistic demands that God says, you pass, you pass, you fail. God calls us to a relationship, not to a life of legalistic obedience. And these two commandments are like that. They call us to love God and to love one another. And these commandments are great ones as well because they, comp they take in all of life. When Jesus said, in quoting Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. It's as if he said all that you are, every part of your life is to be directed toward the love of God. And you're to love your neighbors yourself. There was an occasion where another lawyer stepped forward and of talking to Jesus about this commandment, and he wanted to parse the words a little bit so that he could maybe get by with not loving some people. He said, and, and who, who is my neighbor? So Jesus said, let me tell you a story, right? And he tells him the Good Samaritan story. And, and out of that, he ends up asking this Jewish expert in the law, who was it in the story that was a neighbor? And he said... I guess it was the guy who helped him, a guy that I've been taught to hate or despise or look down on, a Samaritan. Jesus just said, one time after another, you've got to define neighbor as broadly as possible, not as narrowly as possible. In fact, on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy you get to define who your neighbor is and who your enemy is, Jesus said. And if you're in the kingdom of God, you define everyone as neighbor, no one as enemy. Jesus said it, not me. Jesus said these relationships, all of them are taken in by these two commandments. Love God with all that you are. Love every single person as if they were your neighbor and love them as yourself. Jesus said this is what the law and the prophets hang on. 
They're greatest because they're essentially different from all others. They're relational. They underlie all others and make sense of them. They give meaning to them. The law and the prophets hang on these two. So maybe the bigger question is how do you keep these commandments if they're the most important? You remember Charles Colson, um, famously converted to faith in Jesus Christ, wrote a book called Born Again, and then a whole stack of other books. And he was a, he was a good thinker among Christians. He wrote a book called Loving God. And he shares his own coming to terms with the question, how does one love God? How do we do that? He, had, uh, he says he had been going through a kind of spiritual drought in his life, and he was listening to a lecture by R.C. Sproul that encouraged him to cultivate a new, fresh thirst for God in his life. And he wanted to know better how to show his love for God. And so he felt himself somewhat inexperienced as a Christian and began to ask other more experienced Christians, how do you love God? And he said he got the strangest answers. Uh, well, uh, by loving him, uh, somebody said, and as if this would make it make more sense, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And uh, someone said, well, by maintaining a worshipful heart, uh, offering yourself as an acceptable sacrifice, as if that explained it to him. And he said, I pressed for specifics, and uh, this, the fellow just began to detail his devotional reading schedule and his prayer life, and then halfway through the conversation, the fellow said, let me, let me think about this some more. He said when he started asking others, he got all kinds of answers like faithful church attendance or tithing, uh, reciting some favorite sins that one no longer practiced. Some tried to explain loving God as if it were a feeling in their heart, something like a romantic relationship. Others kind of looked at him suspiciously as if he was trying to trick them up in some way or another. He said when he came away from those conversations, he just concluded... The cumulative effect of my survey convinced me that most of us as professing Christians do not really know how to love God. Not only have we not given thought to what the greatest commandment means in our day-to-day -day existence, we've probably not obeyed it. I don't think he's too far off base. It's we live with these generic um, abstractions of loving God, but what does that mean? What can it mean? Well, here's some some things, you could probably make a list too, but these are some things that I think come to my mind as I think about what does it mean for us to love God? One thing at the heart of this is that we let go of our substitute forms of Christianity. By substitute, I mean those things we substitute for developing an ongoing relationship with God. We substitute sometimes what some have called data-based Christianity. That is, uh, we think of Christianity as, you know, we, we keep notebooks and take notes and learn all that we can and memorize all we can. We just fill our head with doctrine and information and data as if that were a way of expressing love for God. But that's a, a kind of Christianity that we control. It's not far from law keeping. It's just data, information. Or there's a kind of consumer-based Christianity that many of us find ourselves falling to at times where our, the whole question is, what's in it for me? We even use the term church shopping and church shoppers. Uh, we use that kind of consumer language to talk about, I'm looking what, for what's best for me. Uh, that kind of Christianity is a substitute form of loving God wholeheartedly, I'm, I'm almost certain. Or sometimes we substitute a task-centered 
Christianity that just says, I, I just do a lot. I join every committee. I join every ministry team. I do, I do, I do, I do. And somehow my Christianity is wrapped up in how much I do. But is that loving God? Or we have to surrender in order to love God fully our culturally rooted Christianity that identifies our faith with an ethnic group or a race or a political party or a movement of any sort, surely loving God is a different form of Christianity than that. It would mean that we let go of our substitute forms, and it would mean that we live out of a new kind of relationship with God. One uh, Dallas Willard called a conversational relationship with God, where we are living with God and relating to God throughout our life, throughout our day, day in, day out. The earliest disciples of Jesus learned that. They lived with this passionate desire to obey and please God, which is a mark of love, according to Jesus. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. But then he added, my commandment is this, that you love one another. Jesus' disciples willingly entered into this discipline of learning from him how he would have us to live life in the kingdom of God. It wasn't about keeping commandments. It was about learning from him how human life is intended to be lived. And they followed him, trying to learn him. That's the beginning of discipleship. That's the beginning of a love for God. Remember when Peter failed so miserably at denying Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Jesus cornered him there on the Sea of Galilee and took him for a little short walk, just the two of them, and he asked him those painful questions. He didn't ask Peter, Peter, would you promise never to do that again? He didn't ask him that. He didn't say, Peter, will you uh, uh, repent of what it is you've done? He had a whole list of things he could have asked Peter, but he, what he asked him was this, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response was, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Take care of my lambs. And then he asked him the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was sorry, grieved, it says, that he asked him three times. Turns out he had denied him three times, didn't he? But he asked him the third time, do you love me? And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus didn't ask Peter to promise about what he would do in the future. He didn't ask him how many laws he was keeping. He didn't ask him whether he thought he was good enough to do anything in the kingdom anymore. He just asked him this, do you love me? Because not because Jesus didn't know that Peter loved him or not. Peter needed to come to terms with that. And Jesus said, if, if our relationship is intact, then we can work together. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been or how you failed, but if our relationship is intact, then we've got something to work with. Peter, do you love me? We... We need to take effort to nurture and cultivate that ongoing relationship with our God. Maybe that's how we express love about it. If we loved him, that's the way we deal with relationships in our lives that we care about. We nurture them. We cultivate them. We pay attention to them. And so we would do with our God. We wouldn't be haphazard about it. We wouldn't be nonchalant about it. We wouldn't take it for granted because that's not what we do with people that we love and relationships where love is characteristic. And so it might look like regularly turning to God to seek his direction in our life rather than running off on our own. It might be 
making a real effort to conform our lives to the instruction he's given us so far about what his will is for our life, given to us in scriptures. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. It might be desiring and cultivating a kind of holiness in our life that, and purity that is like his, so that we could be as much like our God revealed in Jesus Christ as possible. It certainly would mean setting aside a time to be with him, and it would certainly mean learning to worship him as he desires to be worshipped. But you know what the most important expression of love for God turns out to be? It's the second commandment. That's why Jesus gave them together. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is not a warm feeling in Christian thought, Christian theology. Love is an action. Love is a way of being with other people. And it is defined very clearly by Jesus. He said... Love, he said, I give you a new commandment, John 13, 34, that you love one another as I have loved you. When he said, as I have loved you, he defined this word love in a way that is very different from warm feelings or anything like that. Christian love is defined by the cross. Christian love is cruciform. Christian love is, as Paul said in Philippians 2, letting this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a man. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's the expression of love. By this we know the love of God that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Paul says it in Romans 5, uh, that God, we know the love of God because when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us again and again and again. The love of Christ is expressed in terms of the cross. And when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, the expression of love for God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is that we seek to live out a cruciform, cross-shaped love and sacrificially in our lives with one another. That commandment takes up all kinds of forms. You hear it in Ephesians where Jesus takes, where Paul takes the love your neighbor as yourself command and puts it this way, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Just Leviticus 19, 18 applied to the home. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies in a cross-shaped way, sacrificially. He calls us again and again to see other human beings as people created in the image of God, people for whom Christ died, and to respond to them accordingly. It is not the way our culture tells us to define neighbor, not at all, but it is the way Jesus did, and that's the way Jesus defined this obedience to the first commandment is by the second. Remember that gathering Jesus describes in Matthew 25 where at the end of time, uh, the king has gathered all nations before him and he begins to ask those questions. He says to those, he divides them up as a shepherd would divide sheep from goats. And he says to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. I was in prison, you did not come to visit me. I was a stranger and you refused to take me in. I was sick and you did not care for me. And the people there say, when did we ever see you in those conditions and fail to respond? Jesus said, every single time you failed to do it to the least of these, my brethren, you failed to do it to me. And then he turns to the sheep, the ones on the right, and says, and I don't want to separate you all from you all, but he says to the ones on the right, enter into the joy prepared for you. 
Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Naked you clothed me, alone and you visited me. A stranger you took me in. And the sheep say, when did we ever see you like that? Every time he said, you did that to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. This is the second commandment. It's the expression of the first. Love God with all your heart. You do it by loving neighbor as yourself. Not according to cultural expressions of who neighbors are and what they need. Not according to the consumer Christianity that's always asking, what's in it for me? But according to the cross-shaped Christianity that asks, what does my neighbor need and how can I provide that for them? Whether they are my, regard themselves as my enemy or as my friend. This is what the church is, is called to. It's why Jesus said this is going to be on the test. It's uh, really, really important. What's the consequences then of neglecting the greatest commandment? I mean, if, if it's the greatest commandment, failing to live into it must have some kind of consequences associated with it. At the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, there are a series of seven letters addressed to churches in Asia Minor. And... Um, one of those churches is the church in Ephesus. And this is the letter to the church in Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden candlesticks. That is Jesus, the risen Christ. The seven stars are the leaders of those churches. The seven candlesticks are the churches themselves. He walks in their midst. He knows them. He says, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I know that you are patiently enduring and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. That's a pretty good report card right there, isn't it? Patient endurance, not tolerating evildoers, sticking with true doctrine, bearing up for the sake of my name. But then he says... But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at the first. Remember then from where, what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. To remove the lampstand would be to remove its influence, to remove the church's capacity to penetrate the darkness of its world. Not because they didn't work hard, not because they weren't enduring patiently, not because their doctrine was impure, but because they had lost their love they had at first. They lost their influence. The consequences of ne neglecting the love of God and the love of people is that we end up with nothing more than a deed-oriented religion like he describes there in, in Ephesus. Or we ended up, end up with nothing more than a data-oriented religion, just our heads full of, of true doctrine. But it's a doctrine devoid of experience, and it is a religion that has lost its relational connection to the God who loves us. And so the call is to simplify things. We don't need the complexity of what we sometimes do with our religion, our spirituality, our ethics. We make it so full of rules and regulations and rituals. Um, but Jesus makes it simple. He said, when you get up on Monday morning, you have two jobs. Love God, love people. That's it. That's the life he's calling us to in the kingdom. Those aren't the answers we're often looking for. We'd like maybe more details because these two commandments require us constantly to think, constantly to interact with God, call us to relationship, 
How do I best love this neighbor at this time on this day? How is it that I overcome my tendency to want to identify this one as my enemy and come to see them as my neighbor? This, these commandments are challenging. He didn't say they were easy. He said they were simple. They're not hard to remember. You won't forget what the two great commandments are. But the challenge for you and me is living those day in and day out. We have to consider. We have to discern. We have to relate to God constantly in order to keep commandments like that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for unburdening us with hundreds of rules to keep and offering to us two beautiful expressions of your very heart for this world and for us to come to love you wholeheartedly and all that you've made and all that you've done and to love these wonderful, amazing people that you bring across our paths day in and day out. Lord, forgive us forever regarding anyone you've made in your image, anyone for whom your son died as anything less than beautiful and good and worthy of love. Forgive us, Lord, for how quickly we define another as an enemy and how slow we are to define them as neighbor. God, we want to grow in this, and so we ask you to help us. We hear your question, Jesus. Do you love me? And when we say yes, you say, take care of people that I love. And we want to be that way. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.